Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? Now, do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Welcome to Fright. By Wesley's introduction, I'm guessing you can tell that we're talking about a movie from 1985, Fright Night. For real. Would you consider this, Wes, a classic? I don't know. Uh, I don't think that movies from the 80s qualify as classics as much as they are favorites or fan favorites. Because this movie has a loyal cult following, but it doesn't make any of the lists. You know what I mean? From a critical perspective, is it a classic? I don't know. We have to get one thing out of the way from the start. What kind of monster is Billy Cole? Definitely a vampire familiar, but also possibly a zombie. Also maybe a pedophile. <laughs> because they all they all have the hots for Amy? No, there's definitely a weird homoerotic undertone to him and Jerry. Yeah, in 1985, we were still like, we're roommates. <laughs> right. Definitely some level of undead, but I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with a familiar, a human-level protector, but not really, because when he dies, in spectacular fashion, he doesn't go quietly. No. Or neatly. Or cleanly, I was about to say. Woo, man. Who's more dramatic, Billy Cole or Evil Eddie? That's a tough call, but I'm going to go with Evil Ed is harder to watch. Because when Billy goes, it's kind of neat to watch his stages, right? He gets melty, and then he gets sandy and all desiccated, and then the, the skull flies across the room. But man, when Ed goes, he's making those horrible gurgling. It's like... And it's all pathetic. And it takes him like three minutes to die. 
while reaching out for Peter Vincent. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also distressingly gross and naked in a way that 80s horror movies and vampire movies like An American Werewolf in London have no problems with whatsoever. It's so gross. And I think we're only slightly sympathetic for him because of the very sympathetic look, the knitted brows and sad eyes of Peter Vincent. Oh, it takes for so long. He's like, can you please just die? Was he a werewolf? No, he was a vampire and traditionally in, you know, the Dracula level, they can shapeshift. They can be bats, as we saw with Jerry, and they can be wolves. They can be mist, all kinds of stuff, rats. And so he was a wolf for a little bit. And when he died, didn't have the change back ability. So he just kind of slowly reverted to his human form. It was definitely the thing level gross. But it was inclusive in a way that they were like, we want, I want, I want wolves in this thing. And I want bats and I want like terror bats. And wait, what kind of bat? Terror bat. I want to call it. Is that a specific kind of bat? No, it was just a bat that looks like. It was a gargoyle bat. Yeah, like that. Bit of trivia, they were uh, looking for something spectacular for the finale. And Peter Lantieri, who went on to Jurassic Park fame for the, the visual effects, also worked on Ghostbusters. And they found a puppet that was a little bit too scary for Ghostbusters PG rating. So they repurposed it for the bat because it bore some resemblance to the terror bat that was flying around and chomping on stuff beforehand. It was just a larger Jerry-sized version of it. As you can tell, this movie raised a lot of questions for me. Like, there's a lot of rule questions, there's a lot of creature questions, <laughs> there's a lot of lore questions. It sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on vampire lore. I would hope so. But why did Peter's second cross not work on Jerry, whereas his first cross worked on Ed? Well, when he's in his control mode, I think that Jerry plays it cool. When Charlie busts out the cross in the bedroom, he pulls the cross out, but Jerry has a hold of his hand and can't let it get anywhere near him. And uh, he did step back a little bit. And uh, when Peter Vincent shows up with Charlie and Amy to confirm that he's not a vampire and drink the holy water and he pulls out his cross, Jerry steps back and Billy steps forward, but he doesn't get close enough or brandish it or wield it in a way that I guess has belief because that's what Jerry says later. He says, and I quote, you have to have faith for that to work, Mr. Vincent. <laughs> this movie is not about Peter Vincent's faith. I mean, maybe in his in his self as an actor, he ha- he seems to lapse in and out of faith. Like he's got faith with the, with Ed and he burns his forehead, but he doesn't have faith with Jerry. And then he has faith again. And why is Jerry telling him how to kill him? Because he thinks he's in, he has the illusion of control. He thinks that he's got it all figured out and they have no chance at that point. Because I think he already crushed his crucifix by the time he says you need to have faith. Hmm. Okay. And didn't Peter and Charlie vanquish Jerry after the sun rose? Meaning shouldn't Amy be permanently a vampire? I guess so, but if we get into that level of lore, there's like Lost Boys, which actually came after this movie, but uh, the vampires that are turned, and from what I understand, if you have to make, going back to Bram Stoker, if a vampire, a fledgling vampire, has not made its first kill, it can be reversed if one kills the head vampire, i.e. Jerry, who made Amy. The master. A vampire. Right. And she will revert in the same way that Ed might have had he gotten the opportunity. But why did Ed convert almost immediately, whereas Amy took until dawn or she didn't take I guess she didn't take until dawn, but she she definitely had a longer gestation. 
because it was sexier and because we needed Charlie to be able to see her and to mourn her and go through the test where Jerry wanted her to try to kill him to hurt Charlie as much as possible. Wait, what? He threw Charlie in the room and was like, you're going to need this steak before dawn because he wanted to put Charlie through pain by forcing him to kill Amy, the love of his life, who was now a bloodsucking vampire. And therefore she needed to take time to turn? Yeah, you're right. There were some there was some manipulation of the rules. And Jerry was like an X-Man vampire where when it, whatever the situation called, he had a solution for that, whether it be a bat or a wolf or a whatever it was. I've got more questions. Go. <laughs> Why didn't Jerry just kill Charlie the first time when he had him cornered in his bedroom? Why did Charlie's mom calling from the other room cause him to flee out the window as a bat? Because Jerry knew that Mrs. Brewster was actually fated to be a prominent vampire hunter killer later on. Uh, you know who I got Jerry mixed up with? Who that? I thought that Chris Sarandon, the actor, was the opera singing brother from Goonies. <laughs> right. I mean, I can see that, but it's so off base when you really think about it. You're like, once you see that dude, you're like, oh, that's not him. Right. <laughs> and yet I was convinced that Evil Ed was, get him a body bag, was, <gasps> was Tommy from Karate Kid. And he totally isn't. Yeah, I can see that too. Hmm. Well, Jerry Dandridge was a great vampire, and I think his filmography suggests that he might have been kind of typecast after this film. Yeah? He plays like five other vampires in his career. Huh. Um, I hadn't followed Chris Sarandon's vampire career. I just know him from this movie. He's so firmly Jerry Dandridge in my mind. Uh, yeah, this is the role I associate him most with. So Fright Night also classifies as a cat and mouse. Doesn't Jerry toy with Charlie quite a bit? Yep. Because he doesn't see that this little pissant poses any problem whatsoever. Right. He's so secure in his vampireness, But they're certainly not discreet, what with the coffin and the multiple murders and stuff. So why does Jerry murder all the prostitutes and hot chicks, but not Amy? Because Amy represents his long-lost love, which is another Dracula convention. Charlie uncovers the painting of someone who looks like Amy in Jerry's house. Once he meets her, he's lusting after her based on someone that he used to know. And him possessing her or hypnotizing her or controlling her, that's a vampire convention too? And an 80s sexy time convention, because wow. This movie was actually one of my Halloween party movies back in the day, as you will recall. And I don't tend to screen them thoroughly because I like to revisit the magic in the moment. So I put them on, and then mom and dad would wander into my Halloween parties, and it would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> like, American Werewolf in London has the whole porno theater extended scene where they're having long dialogue, and this one got pretty sexy-timey. On the dance floor? All the time. It's uncomfortable. So tell our audience about your Halloween parties. Back in the day, when I lived at mom's house, I would spend all the money I had every year and dedicate the entire month of October, and I would completely nerd out, and I would decorate the entire living room to a specific theme. I would show a movie on the big screen, which wasn't even related to that theme, and then I would <laughs> have a separate theme for the down-the-hall bathroom of terror. The Bathroom of Terror ranged in theme from Jurassic Park to Predator to Indiana Jones to any, they were generally movie themes. I have a bunch still stocked up in my head, but mom put the kibosh because in the very last year, I put something like a thousand staples into her walls and ceiling. I was never able to do it again. 
Don't forget the pirate bar. The pirate bar was a fixture. And of course, when you when you spend an entire month setting up a party that you invite like 10 people to, you don't want to tear it down right after the fact. You're exhausted. So the pirate bar in the corner would stay uh, through Christmas generally. And it was a few, for a few years a Christmas tradition to eat cereal in the pirate bar on Christmas morning. And Halloween has a special place in your heart. Why? Halloween's the bomb, and specifically 80s horror movies are the bomb. We've talked about some of the horror movies that you have to watch quietly with maybe one other person, and you want the atmosphere to wash over you. You want to feel the terror. Fright Night, I don't think, is that kind of movie. I think it's a very self-aware Halloween movie about that's supposed to be fun, that knows that it's paying homage to the cheesy horror flicks that Peter Vincent hosts on his Fright Night TV show. It's aware of the conventions and how people look down on Charlie Brewster for loving these kinds of movies and still firmly believing that he has a vampire dude next door. This is one of the fun ones, and Halloween is fun for that reason. It's a fun holiday because there are fun movies. I felt like it was some kind of like Freudian stuck in childhood thing. Maybe, but can you be a full grown adult with adult responsibilities and sensibilities and be like, dude, Friday Night's awesome. You tell me. Fright Night is, is a perfect, I think, Halloween fun movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. And so I think it's great to watch in a party atmosphere. Fright Night was fun and all the things, but it kind of sucks. What? Come at me, bro. Explain yourself. Too many holes, too much rule bending and breaking, too much back and forth with Peter Vincent. Oh my God. Charlie goes to Peter Vincent to appeal to him on the studio lot. And then Amy and Ed go to Peter Vincent. Then Peter Vincent goes to Jerry's and then he like flees in terror. And then Charlie goes and gets Peter Vincent again and P Peter Vincent declines. And then Peter Vincent shows up and then flees in terror again. All right. Maybe there's a lot of Peter Vincent hemming and hawing. And strangely enough, Peter Vincent is supposed to be the great vampire killer, right? For all the, in, when he's hosting all these movies. But he doesn't seem very menacing or self-assured. Granted, he's up against a conceivably real vampire. But Peter Vincent is excellent and at his best when he's scared out of his mind and wide-eyed and running away, right? <laughs> That's when you see like how skittish he is and how silly he looks in his cape. Yep. I mean, just Roddy McDowell being cast. I do think he was that Roddy McDowell was cast when they were looking for someone to play Peter Vincent. They were like, we don't want him like tough or vampire killer. We want someone who's going to look scared because that's what Peter Vincent is going to be most of the time. <laughs> there were a lot of opportunities for Peter Vincent. Like it could have been about Peter Vincent's faith. It could have been about his redemption. It could have been about him facing his fears. There were so many fun things they could have done with Peter Vincent's character, but he really was just a function of Charlie needing help. And, and in his kid logic being like, well, the TV dude can do it. Man, maybe you should check out the 2010 remake with David Tennant as like a rock star version of Peter Vincent. But you didn't want to review that. Nope. So you're saying that this movie has too many inconsistencies or rule breaking. And I feel like you're looking at it the wrong way. I feel like this is a go for broke movie when vampire movies were certainly nothing new. And they threw everything at the wall and they comprised this movie of all the components that they would hope themselves, the filmmakers, to see in a vampire movie. 
I mean, what do you expect? The director is super young. You know, from from Fright Night, we know that there are cheesy vampire movies out there, and this is the kind of movie that Charlie loves. So I think that they put a lot of care and attention into this movie, but it was still supposed to be fun, even if it wasn't supposed to look cheesy. And I don't think it did. I think that they went all out with practical effects, with the visual effects that they had at the time, with the stylistic devices, the atmosphere, the music, lots of fog machines in this one. But I don't think that it was supposed to be an out and out horror movie. There were definitely elements of horror comedy, and certainly it has its detractors, uh, Kelly among them. But I feel like they were going for broke, and they achieved that without worrying about the vampire lore and this contradicts this logic. I mean, he ate, he ate apples and fruit through the whole thing, for God's sake. <laughs> I thought that was just to draw attention to his mouth. It, it's weird. He definitely had mouth things that were grody during this movie. Like I was distracted by his smackingness and like chewiness. <laughs> and Chris Sarandon has joked that Jerry Dandridge is in large part fruit bat. <laughs> because he continually eats apples and stuff. But it was just a weird tick that made it gross. Um, likewise, the sexy time for this movie, I never found to be sexy. Like when you're a horny teenager, all things are sexy except for Jerry Dandridge in his grody turtlenecks or unnecessarily <laughs> open-necked sweaters and the weird like slacks and he the was, butt grabbing. Oh, he was definitely 80s hot. I don't, oh, I don't know. Jerry's wandering around and they're like, he's hot. Oh, he's neat. He's so cute. Ooh, yeah, women are like fondling him in the, at the nightclub. Oh, so gross. And it wasn't just a creepy factor from Jerry Dandridge himself, but ugh, like every time he was smoldering and seductive, it kind of grossed me out. <laughs> you know what was really gross? What's that? When he ogles her, oogles her. <sighs> Ogles. <laughs> when he oogles her, when he oogles Amy, when she takes off her top, oh my God, that was so gross. Like he looks at her like she's a piece of meat, which I guess that's what technically she is to him because he wants to eat her neck. But that was pretty creepy and gross. But you didn't think that um, Amanda Bierce was hot? I mean, you got to see Marcy Darcy topless. I never got, also she's Marcy Rhodes. She wasn't Marcy Darcy until much later, but she was never on the radar for me. Aside from the fact that she was not even kind of a teenager, she was 27 at the time that she no. was supposed to be playing a high school student. Yeah. Really? They really Dorothyized her, like in the little jumpers and stuff with bows yeah, in her hair? Yeah, they put little bows in her hair, yeah. <laughs> she was definitely more sensual when she got her wig and her sheer vampire boobs, right? <laughs> This movie had no problem with the 80s level nudity, and I guess Amanda Bierce was in there, but it is worth noting that the boobs at the end, when she's a full-blown vamp, were fake. She had like a chest plate Dude. with perky nipples and all that stuff. Brian but was in... tracking the boobs. He was like, did those boobs get bigger? I was like, what are you looking at? Yeah, they definitely did, A, because they were fake, B, and C, in the novelization of Fright Night, there were some clarifications on that apparently when amy when jerry dies and amy returns to normal she keeps the vampire boobs which wasn't overt in the closing scene but that's something that charlie was pretty happy about wow bonus yeah but the sexiness kind of lost on me because she was scary and you have to understand fright night 1985 and i saw this pretty well it was pretty new 
I was all of nine, maybe 10 years old. And when Charlie shows Amy the cross and she turns away and she's like, it's not my fault, Charlie. And he kind of melts and doesn't want to murder her anymore. And she turns around with vampire murder face. I was terrified. Yeah, that was gnarly. Their faces get like progressively weird and gross. And that's what I'm saying. It wasn't just. Her mouth was like on top. Her mouth was like outside of her mouth. Right? It's not sexy vampire anymore because even when sexy time Jerry Dandridge goes vamp, he goes grody vamp pretty hardcore. Is the grodiness tied to their anger level or something? Because. It seemed like they picked and choose when they got grody, vampy looking. I just feel like th- this was commitment. They were going to be sexy vampires, and then they were also going to be scary, grody vampires. And Chris Sarandon, as much as I don't like him, and I feel like I have this weird association with him as this icky character, he totally went for it and committed so thorough. Like his overacting when he's a vampire is off the charts, and it's awesome. You remember when uh, Charlie pulls out the cross on the stairs and he's like, (gasps) and then he laughs. He's like, (laughs) (laughs) it's great. Can you do an evil Ed impression? His dinner's in the oven. (laughs) They're all heightened when they're vampire characters. Yeah. I mean, they had to have cast these people to play these kind of versatile roles i mean what's her face uh marcy darcy gets it all she gets like the innocent virginal high school girlfriend and then she gets to go vamp and then she gets to go scary monster yeah the scariest i'm telling you in my memories and my fear because there was definitely actual fear present when i saw this as a kid as fun as it can be at times that sticks with me her scary mouth bigger than, than a mouth can possibly be horrifying face is scarier to me than anything jerry comes up with including the bat forms and all that i was like this is really unnatural and i was tracking that all of these effects were were practical so i was like how did how are they making her her mouth look unhinged like that i think that the fangs the the teeth must have been covering the lips or something uh, I think they were. I think the prosthetics were all on the outside of her mouth. But um, right. what made me think that maybe Evil Ed was a werewolf, or actually it was Brian's initial idea, so I'm going to blame him for it, was that he his teeth weren't, they were more like fangy, wolf fangy than they were vampire fangy. Like, why did he have such jacked up teeth? Yeah, they changed. When he visits Peter Vincent, he has normal teeth, even though he's a little bit pale. And then he says, what are we going to do? And Peter Vincent and, and Ed says, no, what are you going to do? And he's got his fangs and he jumps and, and like screams at Peter Vincent and then he runs away. But then when he burns him in the head and, and Ed falls against the wall, then his teeth are much more pronounced and they're spread apart almost like wolf teeth. Yeah. Fright Night kind of has the it follows problem where they pick and choose when the things are when the monsters are going to be like extra gross or extra scary or just kind of normal but creepy. <laughs> like they, you can't just pick and choose when they're going to be what level of scary, creepy, gross. And yet they did. Like those long fingers were kind of gross and feminine with the long nails or whatever. And the diamond ring. Yeah, but it's like distinctly unnatural. The whole idea where you can't expect the safe normal rules vampire because then you have the normal rules which you know, you can kill them. Especially with with kids who are well versed in vampire lore as Peter Vincent would be and definitely as Charlie would be then they know how to kill them. And those tricks worked. I don't know about the garlic but the crosses worked and the sunlight worked and conceivably the holy water did. I don't know what he did if he was checked 
checking to make sure it was holy water or if he was clarifying the water by fire or something. He definitely checked by holding the fire up to the fireplace, by, by holding the holy water vial up to the fireplace before drinking it to make sure. Right. Yeah. Maybe he had some kind of sixth sense about whether or not it was safe. But that scene was probably the breaking point for me. And it was maybe about mid-movie, right? When Peter Vincent comes to prove that Homie's not a vampire. Okay. I'm like, I was along for the ride. I was having fun. It was kind of cool the how they did the mirror thing, how he finds out that he's a vampire through the mirror and then Jerry steps on the mirror. So that was cool about that scene. But my problem with the scene is Charlie already knows without a doubt that Jerry is a vampire. They already had the encounter with the bedroom. So why is Charlie going to such great pains to convince his friends and Peter Vincent that he's a vampire? I get that his his friends don't believe him, and so they're trying to do him a favor by proving that he's not a vampire. But Charlie already knows, as point of fact, that he is a vampire so why is it so important for charlie to convince his friends if charlie's just going to take matters into his own hands anyway like in the last scene when they go for the final showdown it's clear that charlie's going to go and do it on his own and then peter vincent decides to show up yes obviously i think that it was his misguided belief that peter vincent was the great vampire killer he professed to be which Granted, it's probably the largest failing in this movie that this kid would be a a horror movie lover fine, that he would come up against something as real as a Jerry Dandridge vampire next door fine. But to go to the movie actor, even at 17 or how old ever old Charlie was supposed to be, and assume that that dude, that slight British dude, was the ultimate vampire hunter was pretty thin. That was hilarious when he's like, but you believe in vampires or whatever. And he was like, I lied. (laughs) He plays it pretty well, too, when Ed and and Amy show up and he's like, oh, you know, that boy is insane. And I like when he goes and scrambles and gets his dressing gown on. Yep. Cleans up his apartment a little bit, which is otherwise pretty well staged to receive Peter Vincent fans. (laughs) Which he just very openly invites into his home. But. I also thought oh, yeah, it was good, kind of funny, point. right? But it was also pretty funny that um, he, <laughs> when he goes to do the vampire test ceremony, that he dons his cape, the whole his garb. Van Helsing, yeah, his Van Helsing vampire killing outfit. Exactly. <laughs> He's got to look the part, right? He's a performer. Yeah. They were fun. There were delightful things about his character, but he wavers back and forth on his in his faith and his confidence a little bit too much, and they didn't ground it enough in his his character's journey. He was just a function of Charlie's journey. I mean, Ed was a goofy, outcast kind of kid who really wants people to like him, which is what Jerry Dandridge preyed upon. This movie was released in 1985, along with maybe my favorite movie of all time, Back to the Future, and I found an alarming number of similarities. There's no way that one could have influenced the other I don't think. This movie of all places was shot on the Disney lot and Universal was the home of Back to the Future and stuff but they were also in production I think at the same time but a lot of similarities. Did you notice uh, all the clocks right at one point when Jerry throws Charlie through the through the door in his closet there's a, it's reminiscent of Michael J. Fox flying across the room when he strums the guitar in front of the giant amp he makes a very Michael J. Fox-like scream. I felt like this was the back to the future of vampire movies in that the hapless, nerdy, uh, sci-fi-loving George McFly character 
was the Charlie character and the lead character. And in some ways, Ed was like the Marty McFly character. Peter Vincent was definitely the comic booky Doc Brown. And I guess by extension, the Jerry Dandridge character was Biff or something. But there were a lot of strange similarities that I couldn't help but notice. He had the 50s diner where they all hang out. Very strange. It's like some weird parallel universe. Well, it was zeitgeist. But, that, but Peter Vincent's comic booky kind of over-the-top delivery reminded me of Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown. They both had white hair. And maybe equally as bad and unconvincing white hair. <laughs> I've never thought that Doc Brown's hair wasn't good. There was a scene in Charlie's house mm. when he's talking to Charlie's mother and he walks in front of a mirror and because of the angles and the fact that it was done practically, they went to great lengths to achieve this trick mirror shot where Jerry walks in front of a mirror and doesn't have a reflection. And we're supposed to notice maybe Charlie is too, but Mrs. Brewster doesn't have a clue. And I never noticed that scene. I found this out doing some research. And Tom Holland was like, yeah, we went to great lengths and expense to set up this very tricky shot. And it didn't work because I framed it badly and it looked like crap. Because Back to the Future breaks rules, too. And, you know, there's time continuum stuff. And they try their best to make it believable, I guess, in the same way that Fright Night is supposed to be a legitimate vampire movie. I guess it breaks some of the rules, but it also plays by a lot of the rules and a lot of the limitations, which is the only way that anybody like Charlie Brewster and Peter Vincent could possibly best Jerry Dandridge and Billy Cole. But, uh, you know, you're in the minority, I think, for this one. You either hate this movie or you love it. There's a lot of fandom that loves it. There, were, there was, in fact, a comic series which extended this tale. 20 of those comics got produced. I'm in the minority, meaning you're assuming that I'm going to say this is boring? Well, you said literally it's boring. No, you said it's kind of bad. So I get what you're saying. Tom Holland went on to direct Child's Play, and Child's Play is not fun. Child's Play is scary, and it's inherently silly in the little doll come to life kind of vibe, but it's treated much more seriously, has no fun elements, and it's kind of unpleasant to watch, whereas Fright Night, I think, hits a lot of beats, even at the expense of practical reality or breaking the rules. I think that they were making a loving tribute to both the cheesy vampire movies as well as the scary vampire movies, and I think that's why it stands the test of time. <laughs> well, then you're right. I'm, I disagree. I think it was boring. I think it doesn't hold up. Sorry, so go Wes. and join Kelly in the boring camp or the cheesy camp or whatever. Child's Play scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid, and this wasn't really scary. It was more fun and fantastical, but I don't think it holds up. I think it I think it was fun for what it was when we were kids, but watching it as an adult, I didn't get the same kind of pleasure and enjoyment from it. There's definitely a nostalgia factor that holds up for me. It's not one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite subcategory Halloween party movies. For that reason, I can't give it a, a totally because you're not remiss in not seeing Fright Night. If you haven't seen it, check it out, but definitely an all right movie for me. So there you got it. An all right from Wes. A boring from Iris. That's our review of Fright Night from 1985. Wes, how do people support us? Patreon. Patreon, Patreon. Actually, you know what? Just listen. Take a little bit of time. Listen to all the episodes for all the movies that you've seen. And then think about becoming a patron, which will help us to further this podcast in perpetuity. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Share our podcast with your friends. And check us out on social media at or whatever movies. You can also contact us directly or whatever movies at gmail.com. 818-834-7389. 835 
0473. I cannot believe this is where we are after like 50 plus episodes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our review on Fright Night. Happy Halloween, and we'll see you next time. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.